your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be looking today at um, verses 7 through 16, which is the sending out of the 12. Sending out of the 12. So that's an interesting little, uh, little story, and you might think, well, there's not a lot there. Um, and in fact, if you look at Mark, his, um, the, way he, the way he treats this little, uh, this little section, uh, this, this little story is it's very uh, terse and brief. If you look at uh, Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 10, you have a fuller treatment of, of the same episode. But uh, Mark is very, uh, very terse in general. And so um, we, we want to read Mark within Mark. So we don't want to necessarily uh, go outside of Mark to read Mark um, at, at first. But it is helpful at times to pull in Matthew to kind of fill in some of his, uh, his shorthand because uh, he will say things like, uh, we'll see in just a, a few minutes, that uh, he says that the message of the disciples, the apostles that were sent out, was repent. Okay? And so, well, what does that mean? Well, uh, and he says, uh, if we turn to Matthew, we get a fuller treatment of actually what they were preaching. So uh, this, this will help us as we go along. Uh, but we do want to read Mark as Mark and, and see where he's going with it because he's telling these stories in a slightly, slightly different manner. Uh, let's pray and then uh, we, will, we will jump in. Father, we are thankful for this time. Uh, we're thankful for your word, how it uh, enriches us, how it, uh, how it blesses us, how it upholds us, how it uh, changes our lives. We're thankful, Father, for uh, the way in which you have uh, you've called us, and uh, you're in the process of sending us out as well. We pray, Father, that uh, we might listen for that still small voice as we as we seek to be guided by the Scriptures. We pray, Father, that uh, you would just be powerful in our midst today, that you would work in hearts, uh, that uh, we might know for sure, that you are speaking to our hearts today. We pray these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark uh, chapter 6, 7 through 16, uh, just to locate us within the, the geography of the story, because geography is, is actually playing an important role in, in a lot of the Gospels, but in, in Mark, uh, we can see that Jesus begins his, his ministry um, and, and in the away from Jerusalem, right? And this is, this is ultimately the point. He is not in Jerusalem. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's on his way there. He's going the way. Uh, in, he's walking in the way, and this way is actually going to lead him to Jerusalem. He is uh, in or around Nazareth. We just learned uh, in the previous section that uh, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown, so he had been in that region and he was not able to do many miraculous works because they did not believe. He is on his way to Jerusalem. We're in chapter 6. In chapter 10, he's in the region of Judea. And chapter 11, he's drawing near to Jerusalem. Right? So, so follow the trajectory of the story. It's going to be very important as we, as we approach Jerusalem. And we want to travel this road with, uh, with Mark. Verses 7 through 16 in chapter 6, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, 
and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Then in verse 30, we skip down to verse 30, this story is wrapped up. There's a little hiatus between verses 13 and verse 30, uh, which we'll, we'll briefly discuss. But verse 30 says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Verses 14 through 16, we have a story of Herod's response to the mission of Jesus particularly and of the, of the apostles generally. But it is about Jesus primarily. Jesus has become renowned, and he is doing mighty deeds, getting the attention of King Herod. Herod has caught wind of the things Jesus and now his disciples are doing and is getting jittery, thinking that John the Baptist, whom he beheaded, has been raised from the dead and is doing mighty works. Herod's awareness is especially important to Jesus and also to the disciples. Jesus increasingly feels the squeeze from the authorities, knowing that they are under the thumb of Rome, and a threat to the stability of the region will not be tolerated. He knows this. Now picture Jesus and the apostles proclaiming that there is a new kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. That God, not Herod, is becoming king again, exerting his rule over the land. This means to anyone who knows their scriptures and even their interpretation of the tradition that an earthly Davidic king will sit on the throne of David as we just saw in Psalm 72. An earthly Davidic king will sit upon the throne in Jerusalem and rule the nations, right? This is what the scriptures say. This is what their tradition said. And so we have in this, uh, in this little section right after the sending out of the 12, and before it is wrapped up, we have this discussion of Herod. Herod is feeling threatened. Herod himself had envisioned himself being the king of Israel, and notice what he does. Whose temple is this called? Whose temple is there, is there in Jerusalem? This is Herod's temple, right? He is the king who is sitting on the throne while the temple is under construction. There's a lot of things going on there. And so he is feeling threatened. He wants to be the king who's sitting on the throne. He is engaging in temple building like Solomon, and uh, he is feeling the squeeze. Thus, the excursus into the story about Herod and John the Baptist is a flashback to the demise of John the Baptist. So in chapter 3, we saw that, that, uh, that King Herod had put John the Baptist to death, here we get a flashback, and it, it's, this is not a, story about, not a story about Herod doing this to, um, uh, to John the Baptist right now. This is a flashback about what he had done. 
and it's showing that he is getting jittery about what Jesus is doing because he, he is feeling guilty about this every night as he sleeps and he thinks that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Thus, this excursus into the story about Herod and John the Baptist is a flashback to the demise of John the Baptist uh, when he had preached that it was unlawful for Herod to have his brother's wife. It is also a flash forward, a foreshadowing scene to Jesus' inevitable collision with the powers that run the place. The more of a following he gets, the more concerned he is, uh, more concerning he is to the Herodians and those who are in league with the Herodians. There is only so much space in the land and even less in Jerusalem, and there's never space for more than one king. You can feel this buildup. You can feel this buildup as we work through the Gospel of Matthew, but all the Gospel uh, of Mark, but all the Gospels really. You can see it in, in Matthew as well. There's this intense pressure that's building, and it's coming from the powers that be. Now, if we step back and, and look at this, and, and we try to integrate it with what's going on in when, when we see these unclean spirits and the demons that are showing themselves. Uh, the unclean spirits themselves are coming back. We'll see in chapter 3, they were falling down before Jesus. They're coming out of the woodwork, we might think. We look around today and we think, well, why aren't these things happening today? Well, it may be that they're, they're, they are in some sense, but, but this is a unique time. It is a unique time in the sense that the kingdom is bursting onto the scene in the person of Jesus and it is arousing the powers that be, right? They are exercising control over everyone, including the officials, right? And this is, this is very important. When we read Paul later on, Paul is going to, he's going to talk about Jesus making a public spectacle of the powers. Right? We don't think about our, our leaders or, or the governments of this world in, in the way in which they did, but but these gospel writers are saying they are under the power of the evil one. Right? They are under the sway of the evil one. And they are, they are closing in on Jesus. They are going to cause a problem for him. Specifically, the Pharisees and the Herodians from Jerusalem. They're going to give him trouble. We read in 8.15, and he cautioned them, that is his disciples, watch out. And this is, this is not some kind of super spiritual thing. This is... Be on guard. Watch what's going on around you. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What is he saying? It is, it is not to say these people might, they might, uh, they might not like what you're saying and, and get a little bit upset and talk bad about you. No. They will seek to kill you. And the leaven that they put, the, the yeast that they put in society will ultimately end in your demise. Watch out. They are going to feel threatened by your message. So in the end, it, this ultimately is a, it, it's somewhat political because a king is political, right? If, if you are, if you're the king and someone says there is a new king in town, this is a threat, a direct threat against you. Now, he knows this, uh, Jesus knows this, and he would have received word about what was going on among the political class. This accounts for the way in which he is hurrying things up. He's like, we've, we've got to get on with this. In 15 more verses, this is in chapter 8, 
In 15 more verses, he, he began to explain how the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. So he is, he's looking around and he's saying, listen, guys, this message is going to get me killed. Now, you, you, say, you, you might look at this and say, well, this is, um, this is that's a, a very earthly way to look at it. Is he just looking around and observing the times and saying, uh, okay, well, they're closing in on us, we're going to get killed, or, or is there something more spiritual going on? And I would say it's, it's not really an either or. In the mundane things of life, in, in the mundane things of uh, gathering together a group of disciples and sending them out to preach, he sees that the, the powers that are, that are at work within the political class are, are at work, these are spiritual powers, and the power of God is at work within him, and there is going to be a clash. And he is bringing it to its inevitable conclusion. Jesus sees that, that the everyday back and forth of his life in the preaching of the kingdom of God by him and the disciples, and then the reporting back, in all these activities of a kingdom movement, the powers of the world, the dark powers that we sense are actually running things, are aligning, them say, uh, aligning themselves against the Lord and his anointed one, to take him down. This is Psalm 2 at work. So when we get to the book of Acts, we get to the book of Acts and, and Peter stands up and quotes Psalm 2 about the leaders, about uh, Herod and, and Pilate all gathering together against the Lord and his anointed. They're seeing what Mark is seeing. Mark is laying it out in a slightly different fashion. But he's saying the, the, the kings of the earth the kings of the land, the powers that be are at work and they're going to align themselves against the Lord and his anointed one. But God in Christ is actually going to lure those powers to one place to condemn them. This is what is so important about the, um, about the way the gospel works, about what Jesus has done in, the flesh, in his own flesh. The powers of darkness that are aligned against him are being allowed to come against him and be drawn into one place, the body of the Messiah, and there to be condemned. Right? This is what Paul is saying in Romans, uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 3. He condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned these powers. He made a public spectacle of them in the cross, he says in Colossians made a public spectacle of them. He's drawing all the evil, all the wickedness uh, onto his own son to defeat them for all time for those who take refuge in him. Before we discuss the, the specific meaning of our present passage, uh, it's important to look back at chapter 3 for just a moment. In chapter 3, the calling and the appointment of the disciples occurs. And then we have this section in chapter 6 where they are being sent out. In 3, 9 through 15, we can see this call, and we learn there that they are actually being turned into apostles, right? So they're disciples, and then they're going to be turned into apostles, sent ones, ones who are sent out. That's all it means. And he told his disciples, this is uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. 
And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. So there it is. And have authority to cast out demons. And this is also repeated in, in this passage. And then we, have, then we get to Mark 6, where he's actually going to send them out for the first time. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics, and so forth. Now, there are several things that we should see here. First of all, the, the apostles' preparation for the mission. You might you step back and say, well, what's all this about? Why, why is he saying, don't take anything with you? What's going on? Well, he sends them out two by two. He's sending them out like first-time drivers. The first time you get in, you get behind the, uh, get behind the wheel, you think you know where everything is, right? Even if you've been living there your whole life, you get behind the wheel, but you actually don't. You have to really think through these things. Once, uh, it's like when we're going somewhere, uh, the kids are like, I don't think I've seen this place before. It, and, you know, it's, and we've been going there you know, many, many times. It's kind of like that in, in the sense that he is sending them out for the first time. And, and this is actually a very urgent Urgent, um, urgent mission that they're going on in the sense that all the powers are squeezing Jesus and his disciples. He only has, a bit of, he only has maybe a year and a half by this point uh, to, to get what he needs done. Right? That's, it, it's very urgent. Um, <clears throat> this, I think, is what's going on here. He is, um, he is sending them out to learn how to conduct the mission on their own. Like the Lord, like the disciples. He is their representative. They are his people. They are the means, although secondary, by which the kingdom will come in. He has an awareness that he is not going to be with them forever. And they then must carry on what he, uh, he has begun. How are, they going, how are they going to do this? Well, they're going to do it by the Spirit. Chapter 17 of John tells us that, that um, the one that I'm going to send, the Spirit whom I will send in my name, uh, whom the Father will send in my name, he will guide you into all truth, and he is the one that's going to make your mission prosperous. But he's sending them out this first time with meager provisions, only a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, wear sandals but not put on two tunics, implying that they should only take one. What did these meager preparations indicate. Number one, the mission is urgent and therefore must not be planned for way in advance. He's saying, don't go buying things to take with you on your mission. He is working within space and time. He does not have all the time in the world. No need for an extra pair of shoes, no money for your belt. The message must get out that the kingdom of God is breaking in, that God is redeeming Israel, breaking, uh, that he's bringing Israel out of exile, uh, installing his king on Zion. Matthew 10 tells us that they are sent now only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
the Gentiles in this, in this particular uh, section are not included. It doesn't mean that they won't be, but right now they are being sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. For through Israel, which comes to mean through Israel's representative and through the disciples who are 12 representing Israel, the nations will be blessed, right? So this is going to come later after the resurrection. But right now he is being made a servant to the circumcision, as Paul says in, in Romans 15, to the circumcision alone. Number two, these meager preparations also mean that God himself will provide for their needs as they go. Matthew, uh, and this is where I think it's helpful to, to look at, at what Matthew says. He says, in, in order to justify sending them out with these meager provisions, he says, for the worker is worthy of his support, right? So people are going to support you, and the Lord is going to sustain you through this. They will all be provided, along with your housing and all your needs. Just go. It is urgent. As the mention of Herod's increasing awareness of their activities is, uh, is being uh, circulated around uh, roundabout. Nothing in that world was private, right? You, you didn't have privacy like we do today. Everything you did was known and was made known. Now, this doesn't mean, and this is probably important to note, um, we, we tend, especially when we, we first begin reading the Bible, we tend to think everything is telling us to go do something. Uh, now, the Lord may be calling you to go do something, but we tend to take everything as instructions directed uh, to us, as if we should never prepare for the missions that we are, we are being sent on. Right? This is not what is going on. This is, um, th we actually see different instructions to them at a later time that actually say, that say the opposite. In Luke 22, 35 through 36, he said to them, when I, sent out, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Right? So, they're even to take a sword with them this time. What's going on? Why no provisions and then make provisions? The idea is this. First of all, it's an urgent message. This has to get out before. So in Luke 22, he's about to go to the cross. He's about to leave them, make preparations for a long mission. But here, the idea is this. He sends them out with only essentials to see First of all, that he alone provides provision. But then he says, prepare, but realize that it is I who, who provide even through your preparation. We can think of the strange principle this way. In, in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, 26, he says, he says this odd statement. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more worthy, th worthy than they? What does it mean that your heavenly Father feeds them? Does it mean that the birds never make provision? Does God drop it in their nest? No, they work all day long. God provides, but he doesn't put it in their nests. 
We saw the preparation for the mission. Now we'll see uh, the consequences of the mission. <clears throat> the message of the kingdom. What is the message that the disciples are to go and preach? This message will prove to be divisive. In verse 11, chapter 6, verse 11 of Mark, And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out, and they proclaimed that people should repent. What is going on here? What is this about shaking the dust off of your feet? Once again, this is not programmatic for us now necessarily. This is a unique situation. Shaking off of the dust signals to the ones who are rejecting the message that it will not do to wait. This message is an urgent message, and the invitation will not always be open. This is especially true for the Jews in that time. Jesus would later say to them, your house is left to you desolate. He would prophesy in chapter 13, in Mark 24 and following, uh, Matthew, Mark 13, Matthew 24 and following, that Jerusalem, not one stone would be left upon another, but the whole thing would be torn down, referring to the temple. This is an urgent message because its rejection will lead to catastrophic consequences. The disciples are not here being petulant like spoiled kids who don't get their way. No, they are simply saying that if you do not heed the warning, God is going to destroy this place physically. Right? This is a physical judgment that is going to fall upon them. As Matthew's versions of the version of the story indicates, Jesus tells the apostles that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. God will see to it that the ones who heed the message are delivered from what will befall the ones who reject Jesus' kingdom message. But what is the message that they are to preach? The message is, in Mark's terse language, repent. Now, we might turn this into a typical you're a sinner, you, uh, you are under God's judgment, therefore turn from your sin and repent. But I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. It may include that, but I think there's something else going on here in the sense, in, in the sense of repenting with the whole life, right? Turn around, so to repent actually means to change the mind, metanoia, to change the mind. It is, it is not... It, it can be used in a different sense than just don't do this again. Okay, and I think that's how it's being used here. I highly doubt that he's just saying, you're a sinner, if you turn from your sins, you're going to be all right. No, this is about the message of the kingdom of God. The message they are preaching is the same message Jesus has been preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew says as much in his uh, in his version, Matthew 10, as you go, preach, the kingdom of God is at hand, right? That's what they are to preach. And how does it, so how does this involve repentance? How does this revolve in, in, involve repentance? Now is the time for the kingdom of God to come. 
have a change of mind about how the kingdom of God is coming. Now, in, in that world and in the tradition that they had received from their fathers and they from their fathers and they from their fathers, they saw the Davidic king going to, going to Jerusalem, taking up, uh, taking up arms and defeating the pagans that were ruling over them. And he is preaching a different version of the kingdom of God. And he is saying, change your mind and follow me. Listen to what I am saying about the kingdom and join in. And these signs, healing the sick, the casting out of demons, and the unclean spirits, these signs are signs of the breaking in of the kingdom of God, of the new creation, of the resurrection life that is breaking in and bringing healing. Do you truly want to turn, uh, return from exile and be delivered from the powers that hold you under their sway? Well, follow Jesus. There's a story that Josephus tells. Uh, Josephus was a first century historian that lived from what, 37, AD 37 to uh, way after the fall of Jerusalem. And he's a very important historian for that time uh, who tells us a lot about, about the politics of the time. But uh, there's a story in, it's called The Life of Flavius Josephus about an uprising of the Tiberians against the Galileans in which Josephus is serving as the peacemaker. He's attempting to put down the civil war without bloodshed. One of the leaders of what Josephus calls the robbers, the Tiberians who were causing the trouble, drew up an army of about 800 people to come against the Galileans. So these are Jews fighting against the Jews. And Josephus shrewdly came up with a plan to end the civil war before it began. He would set up a trap for the leader Jesus, actually called Jesus, and it was, it was a very common name during the first century. Um, it's not our Jesus. But, uh, and he would, he would get him off by himself in the marketplace, and he would disarm him, and he would threaten him with his life if he didn't comply. Well, he does this, and it actually succeeds. And once he gets him alone, he tells him, I will forgive you of what you have done already if you repent and become faithful to me. This is exactly, this is, really is startling when you read this in the Greek. It's exactly the same message that, they, that Jesus uses when he says, repent and believe in me. In, what, what I'm getting at is this. He is saying, follow me and my instructions, and we will do it this way. This is the way of peace. That's what Josephus is saying. Do it my way, and everything will be okay, and the Romans will not cr come in and crush you. Ro uh, Josephus had been to Rome, and he had been working under the, uh, he had been working for the Roman government, so they, they thought he was a traitor there anyway, but, uh, but he knew what an army they could pull together and come in and destroy them. And so he, he's trying to convince this guy, look, you do not want Rome to come in and destroy you. Repent and be faithful to me and do it the way I'm, I'm telling you to do it. This equals follow me, repent and follow me. And something very similar is going on here. So when the disciples go out and they say repent, it doesn't mean that he's ignoring their sin, but it means there is a new king, turn and follow him. Come into his kingdom and do it the way he says to do it.
he is asking for, in a word, loyalty. Loyalty. This is a very important term, and I think it, I think it, summarized what, it summarizes very well what it means to have faith in someone. Exercise loyalty, faithful obedience to someone. That's what it means. Now, some people don't want to do the kingdom Jesus' way, and we'll see this throughout. Judas Iscariot, for example, does not want to do the kingdom Jesus' way. What does he do? He sets Jesus up to put him in a situation where he's going to need to call up arms and overthrow the government. He doesn't want to do the kingdom his way. Make no mistake, this is behind the scene in the garden where Peter cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. In Jesus' kingdom, it will not come by force. In Jesus' kingdom, a sword may have its place, but it's never to be offensive in the building of the kingdom. Put it back in its sheath, he says to Peter. My kingdom is not from this world. So even there, he's, he's in the midst of explaining and defining the way in which his kingdom will operate. And so when he goes to these people, when he sends out his disciples and they go to these people and they say, repent, they're not simply talking about, it's the whole life, really, that, that's in view here. But, but they're talking about exercising loyalty to the new king as he comes. He will not bring the kingdom as earthly rulers do, not by taking lives, but by giving his own, by becoming the servant. Many would reject this message of peace and choose rather to nurse old grievances, to feed the deep hatred that they had for one another against Rome, against the Samaritans, against all the nations, and in doing so, they would cease to embrace his message. Many would reject the healing of forgiveness and new life. They would, in a word, reject the rule of God. Now, what is the means by which? What is the means by which they are to go and preach this gospel? How are they to bring the message? And I think this is a, it's an important way to look at what they're actually doing. What is to characterize their message or to accompany their words? I was watching a, a short video of a, of a doctor, a, a pediatrician, and uh, he was giving, about to give vaccinations to a child, and, and he had two that he had to give this child, and, and I think it was probably his goal to see if he could give a shot without making a child, two shots without making the child cry. So he must have spent two or three minutes getting ready for, uh, ready for giving him the shot, and he would poke around on him with the, with the dull end of the syringe, and, uh, and and without actually giving the kid a shot. Uh, but when he did, the child hardly knew it. He had been playing with him, conversing with him, playing, you know, uh, joking around with him, and getting him ready for it. And when it came, he never even knew it, never even cried. Now, the apostles are not giving shots, but they are delivering a message. And the message is wrapped up in powerful deeds. It's wrapped in healings of diseases and casting out of demons. These things are symbols of a greater renewal that God's renewed humanity, seen in and encapsulated in the disciples, is to take to Israel and the world. What I mean is this. When they're going out and they're they are doing these signs, 
these mighty works. They're casting out demons. They're healing diseases, anointing with oil. These, not everyone who is sick is healed, right? Is that the goal? Is that the ultimate goal? Is that what we should be about? No, and that's not what the disciples were about. It was not just, now these had benefits for, for the people who were healed. It's not that they didn't, but the purpose of these signs was to point out by way of symbol the greater renewal and healing that was about to come. And this is important. We are to be the new humanity created after the image of him who created us, clothed in the new Adam, the new humanity, and we too are to bring a type of healing to the nations. See Colossians 3 about putting on the new man, putting off the old man, being renewed in the knowledge. This is what the disciples are signaling by those powerful deeds. Back to our story for just a moment. It's not that these healings and deliverances weren't meaningful in and of themselves to those who were so healed, but they meant this, the kingdom of God is now breaking in, and it was doing so in and through Jesus. The point of the story is not that we go about doing exactly these same things that they were doing. It is, once again, a unique moment when the kingdom is breaking in and in and through him and his disciples. Now, some of us don't have, most of us, don't have the hang-ups that they had in the first century, the bitterness, the hatred of neighbor, the, the hatred of the powerful pagan government ruling over them. But we do have our own issues, and we do have our issues about what it means to do the kingdom, what it means to look like the kingdom of God. Uh, we were talking about uh, earlier, um, uh, Chris was talking about what we are to, uh, the acts that we are to perform, what we are to do, what we are, the, the way in which the kingdom is different than, or kingdom ethics, if you want to call them ethics, the way in which they are different than the ethics of the world, which, which basically just say, well, go be a good person. Go be a good person. One of the ways, at least, in which they are different is that they arise from within a newly created heart, and they are in preparation for the age to come. They are in preparation for the age to come. So we are to be about living in the kingdom in the way that the king lives, in preparation for the rule of God over heaven and earth. Our ethics then are to arise out of this preparation for the age to come. We are to rule in life. How are we to rule? Well, we're to rule for one thing over our sin, but we are to rule in life through the Messiah. We are to take upon ourselves the image of Jesus the Messiah. And our ethics then arise out of that, not out of some kind of high bar that we have to try to jump over. They arise out of the image of God. Will we choose 
the kingdom as those who follow Jesus or will we reject the way of peace like the majority of those in the first century? Will we, as disciples of Christ, begin to see ourselves as, in, and as instrumental in being the ones through whom the kingdom of God comes to this earth? Now, this, this makes a difference. This makes a difference in our families, and it makes a difference in the wider world. We must see ourselves as instrumental in some small way, many small ways, of bringing the kingdom of God to this earth. Our, our, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Isn't that right? Or is it just some, is God going to just destroy this earth and do away with it and then we're going to go live on a cloud? No. This is to be our goal, to bring about what God has put in, uh, in our hearts by the Spirit, the kingdom of God. With all our faults and shortcomings, will we, like the disciples, eventually say, here am I, send me, let me uh, become instrumental in this endeavor. The message requires it. This is repentance as the gospel knows it. Will we live our lives and surrender to Jesus and his kingdom prerogatives? Or will we obey our flesh? This is the question that confronts us.